create a narrative where you can try to credibly integrate a sponsor and a partner brand. Welcome to the Halftime Snacks. My name is Ronen Einbinde. This show explores the intersection between sports, business, and technology. Are you ready? Let's go! Coming up next on the Halftime Snacks is a digital sports consultant from the UK. He's the director of First Five Yards, and he has experience from working with Sky Sports, Metro, TalkSport, and City Football Group from Manchester City. His experience covers everything from sponsorships and media to digital presence and marketing for some of the most relevant institutions in the sports industry. It is my pleasure to introduce Robert Gebert. Hi, how are you? I'm great, brother. Thank you for the introduction. How are you, man? You're very good, thank you. How are you doing? Hope you, hope you are well. I'm doing all right. I really appreciate your time and thank you for coming to the show. Uh, I want to start off with straight away with your story and your background. I want to ask you specifically, what has you know, commercializing digital media taught you about human psychology? And why are those lessons important? I set up uh, my own consultancy at the start of this year, having spent the previous five years at Manchester City looking at how they can monetize their, their digital platforms. And so I think for me, you know, the times that we are in at the moment, unfortunately, are uh, a difficult time for everyone in the sports industry. But it very much has thrown up a lot of potential opportunities for sports organizations, particularly clubs and governing bodies on looking at how they can change and what their product offering is across the digital space to service both their fans and their customers, but also their sponsors and partners in this space and, and, and trying to push innovation. I think that unfortunately there's been some differing levels of success around that, but it has very much underlined my belief that there is so much that, that we can be doing in this space to, to create new connections between teams and their fans and then creating new fans but also from a, a kind of cynical and selfish point of view there are ways in which sports organizations can be making more money across their digital platforms if they were to just kind of take a step back and think slightly differently be it from a strategic point of view and just understand the the value of the content and the access that they're sitting on and the ways that they can be generating those new opportunities i wonder if actually the market value of quality content went up due to the due to covid and due to uh the lack of you know presence and a connection between teams and sports organizations and their fans what do you think about that so i think that what what has been proven is that the passion for sport is bigger than ever within the general public and so i can only speak from the experiences here in the uk about the desire for people to get back into stadiums and be a part of that communal viewing experience they they want to see games together with their friends and family and uh, whether that kind of impacts on the commercial value is a is a difficult thing to kind of really understand straight away because there are different ways to look at it if you look at the uh the value of the rights themselves for tv companies and for broadcasters it's difficult because they're not really getting the product that they bought in the first place you know a lot of top level sport is around the atmosphere and the uh, 
the intensity that a full stadium provides. But it has meant that the need to innovate has mean, meant that clubs are able to potentially offer a huge amount more content and access a bit more of a kind of peek behind the curtain of, of what goes on with their players behind the scenes in the players' homes and really kind of brought their stories to life a lot more. And then the challenge internally within these organisations is to know what to do with that. You know, I think I've felt for a long time that, that teams are sitting on a huge amount of content that could be monetized and, and commercialized, whether that is the, the kind of existing stuff that they're creating on a day-to-day basis or even how they can use their archives. So how you can create stories from previous events and games to, to suit the narrative of a, of a brand or of a particular time of year. And so a lot of those things have started to come to the fore a bit more, but there's still, you know, a lot of room for improvement, a lot of room for growth in that space. But I do think that on the whole, you know, it is a, a situation where I think that the, the value of sport in general is, is increasing, even if it's been difficult to quantify that commercially in the short term. I think you've only got to look at what a year of sport 2020 is set to be to see with all the amazing events that are going on that will will push this real level of kind of elation across sports fans, assuming that life gets back to some semblance of normality that we all really want. Yeah, I feel like me as a fan, and I'm sure you can relate as well, especially from, let's say, March to June, where there was absolutely no sports. I felt as a fan that I had like withdrawal symptoms that I needed sports in a way, not just as an entertainment, but as a way to connect with something that it's not uh, part of myself, something external. And I think that that need has maybe commercial uh, side effects that maybe you want to talk about. But I want to I ask you more about the different side effects or commercial effects that COVID had affected and to, to fans and sports organizations and what, what type of challenges can be exampled to understand how digital can bring the sport closer to the fan? Yes, yeah, so if you, if you think back to kind of March, April time when sports disappeared, um, you know, all of these teams, all of these broadcasters were left with nothing really to tell people or show people at the time of, 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 of any new information. And so what happened was, was either kind of panic And let quickly, let's let's just kind of throw anything up there. Or a, a number of people did start to try and get kind of nostalgic because in, in promoting kind of great events from the past, it gave people a sense of comfort and and familiarity that was quite, you know, brought joy to a lot of people. So here in the UK, the TV companies did a lot of stuff around uh Like, so in England, they did some big things around Euro 96 for, for football where the England team did very well and they did a lot of re-screen games in, in their entirety and watch-alongs and those kind of things. Um, but some of those things were tended to be kind of one-off events. And I think that was the, the frustrating thing for me, having been on the club side of things, was seeing that there were opportunities to create regular narratives using that archive. Most teams tended to just throw a random game up on, on their social media channels and say, oh, we're, we're going to watch this great game and watch it with us kind of thing. And, and that was it. And for me, I would have looked to try and implement a bit more of a narrative and a, almost a, a series of that content. 
to give people a reason to tune in and to come back week after week or day after day. So whether that be looking at trying to make things topical, so to tie in, I don't know, we were due to play this team at the weekend, but obviously that the game's not going on. So this week we're going to watch the five best games against that team. Or this player, it's this player's birthday, we're going to show their best three goals or whatever. And find narratives that, A, gives the viewer a reason to engage with that content on a regular basis. And then, B, it helps them ultimately create a narrative where you can try to credibly integrate a sponsor and a partner brand. Because that was one of the biggest challenges was that all of these teams, all of these organizations would have sponsorship contracts with clients that had assets they were due to deliver, but the reality was they weren't going to be in a space to deliver them. So they needed to find new ways to deliver that value or be left with a massive hole in their finances where they'd have to give money back or at least roll it over to next year. And so what was slightly frustrating is that from the Premier League's point of view, all they kind of really did was these branded wraps around the side of the field that you're now seeing in the NFL and in, and, and other uh, competitions around the world. And that's kind of the, the, the one thing, the kind of concession they seem to do towards brands. Like, well, we've made the effort, we, we've done something, but really all they're doing is kicking the problem down the road. And there could have been a little more, in my opinion anyway, a little more thought behind, okay, how can we really try to migrate our partners into this digital space and create credible, authentic content for them to partner with that still tells their story and, and creates really meaningful engagement value um, that will ultimately mean that they won't be left in those financial holes come season 2021 and beyond. Yeah, 100%, Robert. I think the pandemic actually tested the creativity of each of the sports organizations uh, independently. Because, for example, I remember that a terrible example that a company did was to uh, stream uh, players playing NFL and on Madden, you know, on, on esports. And I feel like no one really watched and no one really enjoyed it. But at the same time, like the Olympics, started to create content around how were athletes, Olympic athletes, training from home while if they were still preparing themselves for, for the Olympics that were canceled, of course. So I think that, you know, you kind of see how different sports organizations are taking their creativity and, and into their content to promote their brands or, or, or different content in different ways. And I feel like that talks a lot about the culture of each one of the organizations and what are their objectives and their goals. So I think that was really interesting. But now I want to I wanna talk a little bit about uh, you and your, your past and like how, how do you see the, the, the industry. I want to ask you specifically what is one trend in media and one trend in sponsorships that I know that are your two strengths that appeared in the past to, you know, be the future two trends that were supposed to, you know, be the next big thing and failed miserably and you were right there to see it. So I think there's, there's two things that come to mind. One that, that may be controversial or not is, is virtual reality in that for years, this was the next big thing that was going to lead to a global kind of fan engagement. The fact that you could watch a game whilst sitting next to your best friend who happened to live in a completely different country and have that shared experience and the, the challenge with that is that the, for my in my view anyway the reality is that the, the hardware and that you're wearing a big heavy headset 
it's just not conducive to long form uh, content. But also, you can't. How do you have a drink or something to eat because you can't find it because your your eyes are blocked with whatever it is that you're watching on the screen. And so, I just think there's some simple challenges around that that were very difficult. And actually, I, I feel that the opportunity is much more around augmented reality. I'm working with some interesting companies in that space at the moment that have, are developing some fascinating use cases in sport where, that takes real-time data and overlays it across the live content, whether that be using a smartphone or a tablet or indeed across smart glasses that are now coming into the, the, the marketplace. So they've got some use cases, whether that is in stadium for your kind of premium level customers where, you know, for the guys that are paying $500,000 a ticket, well, you can provide this super premium experience by giving them a pair of smart glasses to have a hugely enhanced experience within the stadium. But in the same way, you could have a smartphone application that's um, in a similar state whereby you're sitting on your couch watching a game on TV, but you can hold your phone up in front of you and it, it will be able to kind of overlay those real-time pieces of data, whether it's uh, stats or or positional play or whatever it may be, um, and give you that kind of enhanced experience at home, which clubs really want to deliver to their fans because they're not in the stadiums at the moment. So, yeah, I, I think for me, VR was the one that missed, but AR is definitely one that I think has much more of a an opportunity. And the other one is just around, it's particularly uh, directed to, to football in particular, but is no one really has, has nailed the in-stadium match day app proposition. I've, I was presented a lot of these at the time. And I think the challenge around that is that there's obviously been a lot of success around them in America and the nature of the sport, be it the NFL, NBA, baseball, NHL, is that there are so many natural breaks in play where the fans want or need that extra piece of entertainment or information or have the time anyway to, to be on their phone and doing something. And whether it be ordering some food, ordering some merchandise, finding out more information, seeing replays, whatever it is, and providing that personalized experience, the reality is that football doesn't operate in the same kind of mechanic. And so all you're really looking is how do you take a lot of those factors and shoehorn them into a 15-minute halftime break, in which time most people are lining up to try and go to the bathroom anyway or to get another drink at the, at the kiosk. And so they don't, they're not really looking for any more information. So that's really been one of the big fails for me is just around what is that digital match day experience that I don't think anybody really has or will be able to nail in the short term. Yeah, I actually never thought about it. the different structure of the game could be adaptable to different types of technologies, but not to others that may be adaptable to football or baseball, as you mentioned. So it's interesting to think about how sports approach the game based on the structure of the game, either if it's how much time they have independently of the game, um, how much time before people actually are in the stadium, because there's this tradition in, in the US Uh, for football and baseball games to tailgate. Fans come to the stadium and they have their food, have a meal, have some drinks, you know, before the game, two, three hours before the game. So I feel like the, the way that the fans are acting or the way the game is, is structured actually asks for different types of technologies that not, might not work in one sport and, rather than in others which is really interesting, Robert. I appreciate that uh, answer. 
And I want to also learn from your experience. I mean, you worked in Sky Sports, worked in Man City, you worked in Talk Sport. What are some of specific knowledge that uh, you learned? What are some specific problems that those companies have that you can only only learn in those companies that they're really unique responsibilities or unique problems? Tell us a little bit about it, Robert. So I think with, with Manchester City in particular, that's, that's part of this wider city football group. So they have now, I think it's 12 teams around the world, a number of clubs under their umbrella. And so that as a business is a very interesting proposition that is such a global business, but with some very localized situations and, and, and issues that need to be kind of understood. So particularly from a marketing point of view, we saw a number of challenges or at least some Uh, situations that occur that maybe don't occur in most other sports organizations. So uh, an example of that is just around the nature of how audiences are very different in different parts of the world and what they like and what they don't like and the need to be local while still being global. So we had a situation where uh, the team was successful. They won the, the Manchester City won the Premier League and one of their main partners was a telecoms company called Atisalat that are based out of the Middle East. And they made a uh, celebratory video, including the players, that was very cheesy in the nature of how it was produced. The tone of it, it almost had a kind of Bollywood kind of feel to the content. And so when it was released on the club channels, loads of people in, the, in Western Europe were very critical of it. How could the club do this? How could they allow this to happen? It's terrible. Why would the players do this? But from the client's point of view and for their particular audience, it was perfect because it really fit what they needed. It fit with the kind of tone of voice that was very successful in that marketplace to that audience. So I think it's very important to understand that you cannot be truly global without really knowing the differences in cultures and how you should be communicating to those different audiences. It was a very valuable lesson, I think. There's been a few examples recently that I've seen. I know that Ronaldo put some content out with a, uh, an Asian company called Shopee uh, and that, that, again, was a similar kind of nature, very simple, very cheesy in its execution that got panned by Europe, but it wasn't based for a European audience. It was aimed at an Asian audience that loved it. So that's, that's one thing that has to, people have to be aware of is remember kind of who you're speaking to and why you're speaking to them. What do you think it's more important to be local or to be global? I think the importance is to be local, but on a global basis. So if you can, you need to be local, but in 25 different places. You know, obviously each organization will have particular target areas that they want to, to cover and reach and grow their audiences. You know, a lot of people are really trying to put stock basically into three main uh, regions where you will have the U.S. because of the commercial potential and then China and thirdly, India, just because of the sheer volume of audience over there. And so at the end of the day, if, if, if you are speaking to China and India, you're speaking to two and a half billion people that, you know, and it's then it becomes a numbers game that if you can engage with one percent or point one percent of that audience, That's a big audience that you can then start to sell off from there or, or, or at least develop into a wider fan base. So the need to be to have specialists in those spaces, but then have a general overview of what you want to do globally, I think is quite important. I wonder how would you approach in a three-step process moving from, from local to global? My guess is that 
The first step is to start creating content in the language where you're trying to reach. Then also maybe opening a specific office in, in an area and getting a, a group of marketers that would promote the brand and promote the content in the area. And maybe also creating uh, or putting in merch in, in the area and, start, and trying to sell. How would you approach going from a local standpoint to a global standpoint? I think the steps that you put out were quite good. I think one thing I would change is that I don't think in the early stages it's wise to necessarily open up your own office unless you have um, people working in that office from that environment. If you were to just send guys, for example, from London to go and open an office in Shanghai, it's not going to work because you're not going to know the culture. You're not going to understand the types of content that work, the way that that, that audience engages with platforms. Um, and so I would recommend working with a, local agencies on the ground, first of all, to really understand that. Or at least if you're going to go all out, then bring in people from that local area that are well, well qualified and well connected to help push your story. That's one of the things that City did very well in my time there. They opened an office in China, but they brought in the former head of Nike China to run their office and had other commercial people from that space and worked in conjunction with local agencies in developing that to really get a foothold in that space. So it needs to be a combination of things, but you're right that there is this need ideally to regionalize your content a little bit if you can. So there's a number of agencies out there that work on, on that, whether it is seven league, uh, whether it is Samba, whether it is, there's all manner of agencies out there that are offering those kinds of services where they will run uh, social media and digital channels in foreign languages and have, specific content producers and translators that are doing that kind of stuff and so yeah i think it's about leaning on those resources to build up your understanding and awareness of those marketplaces and then obviously it becomes a more financially viable proposition to set up your own office in those territories once you've done the groundwork with the experts in that space when is the moment when a team or a sports organization should consider going global i, I let me give you an example for example let's say a uh, club uh, Chivas or Club Pachuca in Mexico. They have a very strong local presence. They're known in the whole country, even probably in Latin America, they're also known. But no one has heard about them in Europe. No one has heard about them in the US, Asia. No one knows about them. So when would you recommend the team to consider going global after having such a strong local presence? is pretty much always going to be driven by players. So it's either if you bring in players from a foreign country, you're naturally going to bring an audience with them. Or the other way, that if they were to sell a player, for example, to Europe and try and grab some of that European audience from there. So it becomes a, a kind of, you know, almost a partnership model with that other club. So if they were to sell a player to, uh, to Spain, to, to then try and create you know some kind of pathway to, to to share that because obviously the spanish club are going to want to try and access you know all the historic fans that that player will have and if you can leverage that relationship to find the benefit to, to the initial club as well that's it but ultimately it's no secret that you know the fan base in a particular country will skyrocket if you if a team buys a big name player from that country or a coach, or a, just a personality that's involved in that. Um, the other thing may be just to try and capitalise that if you your players have success on the international stage, so in a major tournament like the World Cup, where you could start to try and 
see if there are any spikes in interest and awareness from that and really jump on that. If you're just generally the profile of your organization is raised as a result of their success. But all of it is driven by the players. They are the number one asset that any sports organization has. That's awesome. Uh, since we're running out of time, I don't want to leave this interview without asking you a personal question, Robert. And that is, if you could write a book about a topic related to sports, uh, probably what you're most passionate about, what you really love, what you, you could eat, sleep and breathe uh, about sports, what would it be about and why would you write it about it? So I've got two answers. One is kind of the, the professional answer in the sense that the reason why I, I set up my consultancy is because I do believe there are a huge amount of opportunities for sports organizations to better monetize their digital platforms. So, you know, there is a, a very much an educational job that can be done there around helping people to understand the value of content and access that they're already sitting on and that they could be monetizing in a variety of ways without having to necessarily spend a huge amount of money themselves. So that's the, that's the kind of the boring business answer. I think personally, look, I, as a kid and as a sports fan, I was always interested in like football boots and kit and the culture around, you know, the clothing of sport. You know, my first job when I was a kid was in a, in a sport, in a shop selling football boots and sports equipment. It was actually the shop where David Beckham bought his first ever pair of boots. And so one year when they released a, a pair of Adidas Predators, he brought the first pair of boots into the store as the kind of PR launch. So something around that has always been a, um, a subject that's always fascinated me. I had friends of mine when I was a kid whose family owned an amazing store in the center of London, a place called Carnaby Street that was called Soccer Scene. And it was so, it was so well known as being the place to go and get any kit, it seemed to be, from anywhere in the world in the kind of late 80s, early 90s. So I've, I vividly remember going with my parents one, one year to go and buy a kind of late 80s Ajax full strip um, because I just loved the design. And so anything around that kind of area, the history of kind of kit design is, is something that has, has always been a, a passion point. And I love what guys like um, Mundial magazine are doing in that space. There's guys like the Sports Locker is another one that are, and there's a number of kind of Instagram handles that are kind of pushing this kit culture again. And I think that, that Nike in particular have really nailed elements of that with their kits over recent years. Um, I love what Adidas are doing with Arsenal at the moment with their kits and, and seeing some of these kind of heritage designs come in with a modern flavor is, is really interesting to me. So that's, I think, one thing I would really like to dive into more and more is that kind of kit culture and with boots and, and shirts and jerseys and all that kind of stuff. Hey, Robert, go for it. Go for it, man. <laughs> definitely. You should definitely go for it. Uh, I think it would be super interesting. I would read it. I would share it. I'm sure you, you could inspire so many other young fans about it because they share the same passion as you. And I think that's a legendary way of wrapping up today's conversation. I really want to thank you for coming to the Halftime Snacks. It was a pleasure to host you. The conversation was super interesting, super insightful. And, you know, I appreciate your time. I hope in the future we can meet up and talk about sports and clothing and fans and stadiums and sponsorships and everything. No, but for now, we're locked, so 
Thank you for coming to Half Step Snacks, Robert. Perfect. Thank you very much. Very enjoyed it. Thank you. Before you leave, I want to thank you for listening. To hear this or any other halftime snack, check out the full archive on my website, which you can find on the show notes. See you next week!